Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Saida Grundy, Assistant Professor of Sociology and African American Studies at Boston University and author of the forthcoming book, Manhood Within the Margins, Promise, Peril, and Paradox at the Historically Black College for Men. In this wide-ranging conversation, Saida discusses how the 1899 Du Bois classic, The Philadelphia Negro, provided a model for studying race and a model for how to do sociological research, what it means to center Du Bois as a founder of sociology, and his relationship to black women scholars of the time. Saida also reflects on the value of Du Bois for her own work on black masculinity, reactive respectability politics, hierarchies from within the veil, and racialized rape culture. Hi, Saida. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to talk about W.E.B. Du Bois. Could you just get us going by providing a short introduction to who he was, or probably uh, better, what he's known for? This is a great question. So when I teach Du Bois to my students, I often say that our discipline, sociology, is in a bit of a big bang theory moment in terms of we are rethinking the origin of our discipline. And for decades, we really attributed the nations of sociology to the Chicago School, to Robert Park, etc. right? And now we are in a moment where we know chronologically that's not true, that Robert Park was a graduate student when Du Bois was producing, you know, Souls of Black folk, et cetera, and that Du Bois was not a student of Weber. Weber was very clear that Du Bois was his contemporary and they were teaching each other. And so we're in a moment now where we can really say that W.E.B. Du Bois, William Edward Burkhart Du Bois, born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, was the father of American sociology. That's very important for me because it puts sociology into the camp of sociology was founded explicitly for the study of race in America, right? Um, because Du Bois' main question was this question of the color line. He saw the color line as being the greatest social organizer of the modern age of post-Reconstruction America, really globally in terms of colonization, etc. And he saw race as the question of purchase for social science. As I said, Du Bois was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He was quite a prodigy in, in many ways. He was quite astute. And his community recognized that very young. He's born into this nearly all white community. He goes to a school where he's probably one of the only black pupils. Um, we think he's the black pupil in the school. And the people of Great Barrington actually take up a collection to send this young man to college. Du Bois studies at two places. He studies at Fisk University, which it was very common at that time for if you attended a historically black college and you wanted to go on to graduate work, oftentimes the degree from your black college was not recognized. It was not accredited. So Du Bois, like so many graduates of black colleges at the time, has two BAs, basically. So he goes to Fisk, where, you know, he has a tremendous legacy intellectually at Fisk. He actually circles back to Fisk. And then he goes on to Harvard. He is the first black PhD to ever graduate from Harvard. 
His PhD is in history, which I think is very informative for how we should do sociology. That, you know, sociology always has this historical lens to it. One of the greatest lessons I got in graduate school from one of my professors, Hannah Rosen, was that there's no sociological question that doesn't have a 100 year old answer, right? So I always enter my sociology through the lens of history. And I think Du Bois is really the preeminent example of that. And he also is a preeminent example of the inseparability, basically, of intellectual work with social activist work, right? So Du Bois is many, many things. He's a sociologist. He's a historian. He's a poet. He's a novelist. Du Bois writes novels. Du Bois writes so much. He's so prolific of a writer that on average, he produced some sort of publication every 12 days, which is wow. absurd, right? Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I have trouble writing emails in 12 days. I, write, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I can't do a text. Right. I mean, he, but that's how prolific of a writer Du Bois was. We also, I mean, funny parts about his personality. Du Bois, at a very young age, thought that he had potential to be very great. And so there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of he starts archiving his own works. I mean, Du Bois saves his Valentine's Day cards from when he's in first grade. Like he's saving, he's his own archivist because he says, and he, he in his document they says this, he says, you know, either I'm a fool or I'm destined to be some great man, right? He's like, I don't know if I'm delusional about myself. Du Bois certainly was no shrinking flower. He certainly had a, a very confident idea of himself. Some would call it ego. But I think that's a real lesson for our students in terms of his ability to save his own work and to archive his own writings is the reason we know so much about Du Bois. I tell that to my students in terms of like, we're in a digital age. We often don't have physical archives. Save your work in some capacity. The cloud that you use now might not be the cloud that's accessible in 15 years. Everyone who wrote a dissertation in 2005 can tell you that, right? Like trying to go find our like drives from old laptops. Save your work because you are a self-archivist in many ways. So Du Bois, as the founder of sociology, to tell that story, as he emerges from Harvard and is a scholar, he's a newly minted PhD, he is what Alden Morris would call, Alden Morris is a contemporary sociologist who wrote uh, The Scholar Denied, which is one of our best works to date on Du Bois. I would put it up there with what D.L. Lewis, the foremost historian of Du Bois, has written. So Du Bois becomes a scholar denied, meaning that Upon emergence from a graduate school, he's this brilliant young thinker, and he is ostracized and marginalized from the field by race. He is really shut out of what would become the Chicago school later. He is really marginalized, and white scholars refuse to hire him. And so he goes to Atlanta University. Now, Atlanta University at the time was a newly founded institution, a, a purely graduate college in Atlanta University, in Atlanta, Georgia, that was founded to be the graduate colleges of Spelman and Morehouse. Spelman being 
an all women's historically black college and Morehouse being an all male historically black college. Now I happen to be an alumna of Spelman College. My work is on Morehouse College. Du Bois goes back to Atlanta University, which is founded solely to educate graduates of those two historically black colleges. And it's at Atlanta University where he puts the groundworks and the frames together for what we now call the Atlanta School. The Atlanta School was the emergence of Du Bois in sociology. Du Bois was training up pupils, graduate students, an entire bay of students, really, who just a study of his students is phenomenal in terms of the reach they then have into Black civil rights movements, politics. They are intellectuals in their own right. Many of the women he trained were hyper-marginalized from the field, but they did absolutely brilliant work. We're talking about people who we, when we call Du Bois the father of American sociology, one of the reasons that he really cemented it because he was the first one to have this really empirical sense of sociology in terms of methodology and in terms of what would be the scientific empirical basis of sociology. So, you know, sociology wasn't just waxing poetic to him. And in fact, he was very critical of what he called car window sociology, meaning, and by car, we probably meant a train car, meaning that sociologists were basically passing through these fields of study without ever getting out of the train car, meaning they had a two-dimensional view of what they were studying. When Du Bois does the Philadelphia Negro, it's the most comprehensive, exhaustive study of what we would now call case study, what we would now call ethnography. But he also uses mixed methods. He's proving the point that in a time when Black poverty is being articulated as something pathological, when white immigrant poverty is being articulated as something situational. We're talking about a time through the 1890s to the turn of the century in which there's this huge flux of Southern and Eastern European migration to the United States. And they are basically becoming white because we're not pathologizing their criminality. We're not pathologizing their poverty. We're not pathologizing their families, their disease, etc. We're saying that that's conditional, that that's just a matter of, you know, all these settlement house movements were based on the belief that you could, if you just change the conditions for these immigrants, you could change them. They could be assimilated into American mainstream culture. They could be whitened. Their social problems could be fixed. But when it came to black life, particularly black people in the South, black people who existed really in large populations in northern cities, Philadelphia being one, the way that black life was articulated is there was something intrinsically pathologically different about black people that no amount of social services could fix. And what Du Bois does very brilliantly is, is would come to be called the sociological imagination is what he really does with the Philadelphia Negro. He goes into these communities and he empirically makes the case with empirical evidence that no, Black life is no more pathological than any other group. In fact, there is no pathology of black poverty. Poverty is conditional. And we're not talking about something in which blackness is the problem. It's the economic condition that's the problem. 
there is no amount of values that these people don't have about, you know, about citizenship. There's no amount of value they don't have about education, et cetera. And Philadelphia Negroes really now it's really the template, I think, in terms of what all good race scholarship does. But at that time, it was absolutely revolutionary to make the claim that black people were not inferior. Right. This was a widely accepted. This was not a marginalized, you know, Klansman view that black people were inferior. This was the view. If your students should understand anything, eugenics was not a fringe movement. Eugenics was as mainstream as it got. And the idea that black people were generationally passing on their inferiority to each other was just widely accepted as fact. And Du Bois is one of the first people to really challenge that there's nothing inferior about black people from a biological or cultural sense. So that's why we really, you know, of Du Bois's many, many works. I think if you were to boil down what he does is he brought an idea to sociology that you could not bank on these assumptions that were not founded in evidence. That's, I think, why he's the father of sociology. So I'm really interested in how you answer this next question, which is, do you have a sense that he's widely read in the larger discipline of sociology? And and the reason I'm so interested in this is you've presented this move that's happened, um, this, this argument that's being made and starting to be more accepted that he isn't just one of the figures in sociology. He's a central, if not the central figure in American sociology. And so now you're starting to see if you buy a theory book, you have that excerpt from Du Bois. Right. When you take your intro to sociology class, you're starting to hear him mentioned more and more. Right. But I'm curious if you think people are actually reading his work or if that's more of just this thing where now you're supposed to say that name, but are, are, is, is it is it that thing, you know, when you go to grad school, it's expected by the time you have your master's or PhD in sociology that you actually read Weber or yes. Durkheim, right? But right. now his name's getting mentioned there, but are, is there that expectation yet? Are people doing the work? Thank you for asking that. To answer your question, I think that there is a slow reclamation of Du Bois, and it really comes down to individual personnel in many of these graduate programs, right? So my colleague uh, Zine Mugabani at, at Boston College, who was chair of her department and also was tasked with basically revamping their theory curriculum for the graduate students, she really became a model for recentering Du Bois. So if you go to Boston College for your PhD, you will be very, very thoroughly uh, knowledge. Not uh, in Du Bois, and you will see Du Bois as someone who is central to the original framing of sociology. And I mean this by this. So one of the claims that Professor Mugabane makes, which is really uh, accounted for historically, is that the original, we're talking about the very like infant ideas of sociology on this continent. It emerges soon after slavery. And there's this conversation that is happening back and forth between American plantation owners, planters, the American slaveocracy, and European theorists. And essentially, American slaveocracy is asking European theorists to come up with a way of perfecting this racial exploitation that won't lead to emancipation and revolution again, right? They had just come out of the civil war, they had just come out of emancipation, and they're like, what is a way that we can do this slave-based economy here, but that will be more perfect than the first time? And by perfect, they meant, which will not lead to revolution. <laughs> 
And so that, when you think of our earliest conversations with European theorists were about recreating a more concretized, a more secure form of racial exploitation in this country, then you see Du Bois in that framework as being extremely seminal. Extra, I mean, he's really the lodestar in terms of those early iterations of sociology as having this import to actually studying exploitation instead of being a tool and a mechanism of reproducing exploitation. Now, we don't like to talk about how sociology was, in theory, was used as a mechanism to reproduce exploitation, but it absolutely was. Du Bois really interrupts that. He really blows that plan up in many ways. If you, you know, uh, if we've had this conversation, Harvard had a, you know, 150th year uh, celebration of Du Bois. Oh, and this would have been, what, two years ago. And I was part of that symposium. And it was really a very thorough conversation about how do we change our training? How do we recenter Du Bois, reclaim Du Bois? And what is Du Boisian sociology? So Larry Bobo wrote a wonderful piece in the Du Bois Review, which he's the editor, about you know bringing Du Bois back in, about this idea that if we are going to move Du Bois from the margins of just saying, oh, well, if you study race, you'll know Du Bois, to saying, no, if you're a sociologist, you know Du Bois, right? I don't know about your training and my graduate training at Michigan. When we took classical theory, Du Bois was never mentioned. Now, this is what's interesting about that. We were literally talking about Du Bois' contemporaries, right? We're talking about Weber. We're talking about Durkheim. We're talking about Hannah Arendt. We're talking, you know, we, we went back to, you know, Habesian sociology. We went back to all the real titans of European, particularly German philosophy and French philosophy. We in no way acknowledge that Du Bois was studying in Germany. I mean, Du Bois is their peer, they are learning from him and they say as much. He is not their student. Yeah, and instead what we get, because we did read Du Bois, but he was lumped in with contemporary sociology. Absolutely. And it's, so that's when the conversation shifts to race, but the timeline is completely messed up. Absolutely. So that we have this anachronistic approach to Du Bois's life. Now, mind you, Du Bois lives an incredibly long time, right? So he dies on the eve of the March on Washington in the 1960s, right? So Du Bois is a voluminous life. I mean, he really traces all sorts of political thought from Reconstruction era through, we're talking about through civil rights. And he also becomes increasingly radical. He traces, you know, Pan-Africanism, he traces black radicalism, the Niagara movement. You know, Du Bois is a founder of the Niagara movement. And he increasingly becomes pan-Africanist and radical in his thinking with age, which I also think is a, a wonderful tradition from Du Bois. Like he did not soften with age. <laughs> he actually became more indictful of U.S. imperialism with age. But yeah, when we talk about him, we perhaps because he continued to be prolific so late in life, we actually remove him from the whole arc of his life. We talk about his corpus as though it's contemporary, but it was also classic. And it was not simply US-based when it was classic. It was absolutely squarely centered with Berlin, with the Sorbonne, et cetera. These were people who were his contemporaries. Du Bois 
comes of age in the Victorian era. So yes, I, I absolutely agree that we really misplace Du Bois when we teach him in our graduate curriculum. And I think because of that, we lose much of his import. My graduate training, again, when I think back to our, so our prelims on race when I was in grad school, race was always taught as contemporary. Well, that's, I think, a disservice to race scholarship, to one, treat it as contemporary, and two, it removes just what we were talking about, how much of the Chicago school and Robert Park, et cetera, was about creating whiteness for immigrant populations, right? Like we have really misappropriated where race sort of begins in terms of our disciplinary history. I'm wondering if we could shift from talking about Du Bois to talking about you and Du Bois. <laughs> when did you first hear about or become aware of his ideas? So this is going to be fairly unique, but unfortunately unique. So again, I'm a product of Spelman College. Spelman is a historically black women's college in Atlanta, Georgia. I like to say it's the most venerable of the women's of the black women's colleges, but there's only two. <laughs> So, <laughs> so the competition is kind of It's easy to be number one, flip a coin. Yeah. <laughs> but so my training at Spelman was very much a black feminist intellectual tradition. I came to Du Bois through black feminists, specifically Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells. Du Bois is a figure who, because he was, I mean, completely you know, drenched in black advancement and in racial progress um, uh, politics and racial project initiatives, right? Du Bois is in conversation with black women intellectuals of his day. So it sounds so weird to say it now. I had no idea that black women's intellectual tradition, particularly in the 19th century, was marginalized <laughs> in sociology because my idea of Du Bois was that he was sitting shoulder to shoulder with Anna Julia Cooper and Wells. I had no idea that most of my field had never heard of Anna Julia Cooper. I had no idea that Ida B. Wells was not going to be considered one of the most important quantitative scholars in the history of our field. So Anna Julia Cooper was a preeminent black feminist of her time. She was a masterful thinker. She has 22 letters that she exchanges with Du Bois over about, oh, 10 years. Du Bois at this time is the editor-in-chief of the Crisis Magazine. The Crisis Magazine is the NAACP's preeminent publication. And it's basically the publication for black progress at the time. We're talking about 1890s through the early turn of the century. And Anna Julia Cooper is writing him and she's saying, place my pieces in this magazine. Like I'm writing about black advancement. I'm writing about the black women's club movement. The black women's club movement was, if your students remember, the 15th amendment gave the right to vote to black men, not to black women. Well, what that did was that it informally organized black women politically because uh, unlike white women, um, white women who, you know, well, all women get suffrage uh, in 1919, but white women were more late to political organizing because black women used black men as delegates for the racist vote. So the idea was that black men were not voting as individuals. 
They were voting as representatives of the race. And it was black women who were organizing to make sure that the race's agenda was represented in black men's votes. So the black women's club movement is where we see black women who have no citizenship, who have no formal citizenship are organizing informally to make sure that they are represented in the political sphere. And they were so organized and they were so politically active that there was a joke. Uh, some white politicians started the joke that if there was a political convention in town, you better be prepared to do your own laundry and raise your own children because all the black women would be at the political convention. That's how politically engaged black women were at this time. So Anna Julia Cooper, who is really hyper involved in the Black Women's Club movement, as is Ida B. Wells, she's a masterful intellectual and she is Du Bois's contemporary in every way. And Du Bois was very conscientious and very much recognized that black women had political import. That in fact, he said the women's vote will be more important to the Negro than it will be to whites, right? That he felt that racial advancement was going to be staked on black women getting the vote and that that would be far more beneficial to black people than even white women's votes would be to white men. So he absolutely understands that black women are politically important and he very much supports them politically, but he does not recognize black women as intellectuals. Intellectual to him means man. It means masculine. It means an idea of himself, most likely. You know, this Hazel Carby, who's a theorist at Yale, she talks about how Du Boisian's sense of intellectualism is really bound in this masculinist presentation of the three-piece suit and this whole heteronormative idea about intellectualism. So he absolutely cannot acknowledge black women intellectually. And it's Anna Julia Cooper who really forces him to that. She's working on him. She, like many black women who are his contemporaries, are working on Du Bois. And so what we see eventually after these multitudes of letters they exchange is that Du Bois publishes a photo of Anna Julia Cooper in the crisis in her doctoral regalia. Like you can't be more forthcoming about this is a black woman intellectual, right? He publishes a photo of her in her regalia. We're talking about a time when 90% of working black women were domestics, were housekeepers and nannies and maids. To publish a black woman in her doctoral regalia? That's revolutionary in its own sense. Ida B. Wells is also someone who's very much in conversation with Du Bois and is very much saying that this thing we call empirical work, right? Ida B. Wells is a journalist as much as she's a sociologist. This thing we call evidence. Ida B. Wells takes lynching, which lynching was one of the foremost agendas of the Black Women's Club movement because lynching, it was a form of white terrorism that was devastating black life at all levels, chief and foremost, Wells proves it was an attack on black economic and political progress. The most common time for a lynching was the day before an election. Lynching was a myth that was being told about black sexuality. The myth was black men are rapacious, black men are sexual predators, and that's why they deserve to get lynched. And black women have no virtue, have no femininity, and you can't rape them because you can't rape someone who has no virtue, right? They're not even women 
How can you rape someone who's not a lady? And Wells really blows this apart with exacted, extremely well-documented empirical evidence where she comes to this study because a good friend is lynched after he opens a grocery store in Memphis. So she starts documenting all of these newspaper accounts of lynchings, all these community accounts of lynchings, and she's the one who proves that, no, this white terrorism is... The myth they tell is that this is about protecting white women. The, the myth is about this is about black men being rapists. What's really going on is black people are political and economic competition. So if you were a black person who opened up a grocery store and that grocery store was seen as competition with the white grocery store in town, yes, you would absolutely be lynched. That's what happened to her friend. Du Bois is being worked on by these women. That's how I came to Du Bois is seeing him as someone who is in conversation conversation with his black feminist intellectual peers. And I think because of that, I have always had a relationship with Du Bois that's probably far different than maybe classical sociological approaches because I see Du Bois as someone who has this huge feminist possibility, but also represents much of the tension about heteronormative black masculinist thought and how it relates to black women's intellectualism. So I think he represents both. He represents how black men can be worked on and he also represents the resistance that masculinist approaches to the field can have to the intellectual import of black feminism. And with that, I think because I recognize that sort of tension and I came to him through that sort of tension, I'm actually quite comfortable with Du Bois because he's not this infallible creature to me, but I also see him as someone who is proof that the arc of someone's scholarship can become increasingly, increasingly progressive. You know, Du Bois basically changes his mind about Anna Julia Cooper. He changed his mind about black feminist intellectualism because he changes his mind about Anna Julia Cooper. I think that's a very powerful tradition. It's such a different understanding of a theorist than you encounter that one work that is so profound and yeah. then you hold it up almost like uh, some sort of religious text that you just carry right. around, right. right? Instead, it's as a person. And it's also an important reminder because people are so commonly defined by that one writing, that one article, yeah. that one thing, rather than understanding how they came to that idea, which it's funny because as sociologists, we often treat theorists in a very asociological way. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. We remove Absolutely. them from the context and we just take this idea and let that carry Absolutely. on. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's an important point. So, you know, like so many undergraduates, I think particularly having been a graduate of black college, we read Souls of Black Folks, right? Souls of Black Folks is uh, originally 1899 publication. Souls of Black Folk is Du Bois's magnum opus, right? It's his piece de resistance, right? Yeah, and that's the excerpt that you always get the chapter from Absolutely, the theory book, right? Absolutely, yeah. right? And Souls of Black Folk is so powerful because it's really not just sociology. It has this spiritualist import to it that is what Black people in Reconstruction needed to begin our collective healing from slavery. And he is claiming Black humanity in that work. Now, here's something to remember. Part of how Souls of Black Folk is written is just part of the stylistic way that works were done, which is they did not have parenthetical documentation in that time. Even, you know, the idea of even footnotes would be foreign to how he was writing in that time. If you do not know that he was in conversation with Black feminists, then you don't know that chapters of Souls of Black Folks, like The Wings of Atalanta, he inserts that chapter because Black feminists are telling him you must address the woman question. 
If you do not know that, then you do not know that he's talking directly about black women in those works, right? And that's how I read Du Bois as someone who belongs to a conversation around black racial advancement of his time, that he was not this lone racial wolf. And, and, you know, and he wasn't just in conversation with Booker T. Washington. He also changed his mind about Washington. He at first nods towards Washington's ideals. And then as it goes on, he's like, absolutely not. Washington believes in black inferiority. And I think part of that is because he is, again, his feet are kept to the flame by black feminists of his time. So if you don't understand who he's in conversation with, then you can't actually read him with any sort of accuracy, partly because it would be an anachronistic reading of him. We would not understand who his contemporaries were at that time. And because the styling of the writing is not what we recognize as lit reviews today or citations today, we would not understand that it would be implied and inferred that he was in conversation with Anna Julia Cooper and with Mary Church Terrell, et cetera. Cheryl Gilks, who's a wonderful sociologist and who is one of our best sort of feminist sociologists of Du Bois, she talks about this a lot, that it would have been understood by his readership that he was talking about Anna Julia Cooper's work. It would be understood that he was referencing black feminists. We don't understand that now because we have too much historical distance from Du Bois. Yeah, and it's fascinating because in a sense, the beauty of his writing is that it is accessible and powerful. It's lacking those kind of standard citational model. Yes. But when you're reading that tiny excerpt in theory, and it almost does a disservice to thinking about him as a central sociologist because you don't get exposed to any of that more classic, you know, here's the here's my empirical model of the right. world, here's how you do research. We only get that tiny part where he's talking Right. about this firsthand account and giving this autobiography, right? Right. To that point, I really believe that the Philadelphia Negro should be the grounding work in any research logics class and in any methods class. I mean, it has stood the test of time as like, this is methodologically so advanced, right? It was doing sociology in a way that no one had thought you could do methodologically or no one really thought to do methodologically. And another interesting point about Philadelphia Negro is that his research assistant is a young white woman, a master's student who I am doing her a disservice by forgetting her name, but this is so easily looked up. She's in the she's in the appendices of Philadelphia Negro. But again, the style of the day was that she would not be a co-author. So in many ways, her name is rarely known, but she's the one who goes on to do this exhaustive empirical work about black women domestics, which I feel like that should be completely reinserted back into our central, basically history of methodologies type of canon. That kind of stuff is like, we don't even realize how radical it was for Du Bois to be working with this female graduate student, you know, who encouraged her to do this work about black female domestics. When we talk about how Du Bois has been marginalized, I think one of the greatest injuries has been to put him in the margins of those types of subfields in the discipline. Like, why is he in the margins of methodology? You know, Du Boisian methodology is outside of, you know, the sociological imagination, outside of, you know, symbolic interactionism, I think it's one of our most important methodological frameworks, this Du Boisian sense of how you needed to get into these communities to actually study them. 
that's a good transition to think about your own work. So I'm I'm wondering how your readings of Du Bois, his theory, his methodological approach, how did that influence what you went on to do and the research projects that you engaged in? Mm, so this is great. So I, in the Du Boisian sense of maybe trying to examine Black life through these more nuanced, fuller lenses, right? So when I was an undergrad, my, uh, I, I went to undergrad again at Spelman and to date myself, I finished Spelman 2004. So about my sophomore year. Now, Spelman and Morehouse are, they're not, they're not officially brother-sister schools, but they pretty much are by all practice because they are adjacent to each other. They are socially extremely intertwined. They even have some structural enmeshing in terms of students can cross, you know, register to each other's classes, etc. They are the two marryingest institutions of higher education. So there's more Spelman Morehouse couples than any other institution. So they're very enmeshed. As a sophomore at Spelman, I was writing for Morehouse's paper, their official student paper, and there was a really vicious homophobic beating on campus of a student named Gregory Love. And the story goes that Gregory Love goes to the shower room in his dorm and he peeks over a shower stall to find another student Aaron Price, who is showering. He's nude and showering. Well, Aaron Price goes on a rage. I mean, he is flipped and he's ranting all these homophobic rants and he goes back to his room. He gets a baseball bat. He comes back to the shower room and he beats Gregory Love within an inch of his life. This goes to trial. Aaron Love receives 14 years in prison. It would have been tried as Georgia's first hate crime, but Gregory Love would not name his sexuality. He would not, I think probably because the presence of his mother and family would just, he just would not go there. But I was really fascinated by the reaction at the institutional level to that hate crime. I was really fascinated by what it said about a certain type of black masculinity that believed that basically that homophobic violence was basically a small price to pay to preserve the image of of black male respectability. I have always you know, approached that as, you know, the Du Boisian double consciousness is what we call it. So, right, so in Du Bois's corpus of theories, if your students want to understand, double consciousness is one of his most important contributions because it is the idea that there is a racial veil, that there's a white world and there's a world of people of color, racialized subjects. And that veil, it's like a one-way mirror that if you are a racialized subject, you can see out into the white mainstream. But the white mainstream doesn't see in. They only see basically what they want to see projected onto the veil. So if that's what they want to see Black criminality, that's what they want to see. If they want to see black inferiority, that's what they want to see. They can't see into the veil. They don't actually know the interiors of black life. Now, I think that that theory is so simple, but it's so poignant. Like, well, the reason it stood the test of time is because it's so true. And I think that all of our great theories that stand the test of time and capture something that people feel observationally is true but they put a sort of architecture to why it's true, right? So Kierkegaard, who is like, existentialism, when you think about it, is like actually pretty streamlined, simple, right? Yeah. It's like, look, 
None of us knows what our meaning is on this earth until we give our life a meaning. And oh, by the way, if you think you're going to have routine marriage and children and passion and love and sex, those two things are not going to exist at the same time. Like these are like things that most people be like, yeah, sounds about right. Right. Like, yeah. No, no, no. So for I, sure. Except with just, I suppose, a few additional large words and a, a lot of obsession with death. Well, well, Kierkegaard is like working through his own real yeah trauma right like his family like all his siblings died like yeah. he's, he's working through all except one he's working through his own trauma that's why he talks about death so much but yeah so du bois is working through race in these ways so i find that double consciousness is very simple but here's the piece to it that i think du bois did very brilliantly he's saying that the truer lens on these social racial hierarchies comes from within the veil, not from outside of it. That there's a spiritual sort of enlightenment that you get from being a racialized subject within the veil. Now, what I did with my work is I basically framing it on that grounding of the veil is saying, look, there's actually something more that the veil does. The veil is constitutive in a way. It organizes life within it. The veil isn't just about this transaction from the world outside of it and the world within it. It actually organizes life within it. So one of the things that the veil does is it takes African-Americans, black people, who are hyper-conscious of how we are seen, and it organizes our racial agenda inside of it in terms of we have hierarchies within the race, right? We have sexual hierarchies, we have class hierarchies, we have gender hierarchies. And what the veil does within the race is it basically says what becomes a racial agenda is what the hierarchy within the race can say is the racial agenda. What's the most important is what straight black men say it is, right? So when we look at AIDS, which Kathy Cohen at, at Chicago, the, the political scientist, she talks about AIDS as this real, this crisis within the black community that was not treated as a crisis within the black community. Why? Because AIDS is affecting the most hyper-marginalized African-Americans. Now, AIDS disproportionately whoops black communities' asses, right? It is devastating. We talk about AIDS as though it was, you know, a gay white men's disease. It was devastating to black communities. Why was that not treated with the pertinence and an imperative of police brutality, right? Because police brutality's victims are seen as mostly black straight men. That's not even necessarily true. When we look at black women, when we look at trans and gender non-binary black people, when we look at black people with disabilities, like mental disabilities, they are way, way, way disproportionately targeted by police violence. But we talk about police violence as though this is a crisis to straight black men. Instead of seeing this bigger picture in which we're setting racial agendas based on how we think white people see us, how we think it affects how we're seen from beyond the veil. So in my work, I take issues like campus sexual assault, homophobic violence, all these things that are happening in this space of black men who are in college, black men who are basically preparing themselves to be examples of good black men to a white world who are preparing themselves to defy all the stereotypes that white America has about black men. And I say there's something about the veil that organizes how they respond to that. So when Morehouse decided that this monstrous homophobic violence that they had on their campus was not really 
really a problem because the most important issue was their image, that's a veiled problematic to me, right? That is them choosing to say that the most important priority they have is about how the image of black men is pressed into the veil and not about the actual injury done to black people within the veil. And so I don't want to take this on too much of a tangent, but I mean, the, the project is, it's an amazing project. I'm wondering, is your focus, your data, is it specifically on the institutional response in terms of what the administration does? Or are you also right. looking at how students and faculty and the other people who fill the college, how they respond? Or is it really the question of what do institutions do? Right. So my unit of analysis to be really research designy was men themselves, right? I was interviewing the actual graduates of Morehouse. Now, okay. in that, there's an institutional story told, right? So I'm basically telling the story of how they were groomed by the institution. One of the things that I talk about in the work is this idea of reactive respectability. So a lot of your students are probably familiar with the term respectability politics. It's like it's, it's catching fire on the Twitters, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's escaped academic talk to definitely oh, be. absolutely. It's, it's absolutely jumped ship. In, in, in a good way. In, <laughs> Not in a, a yeah. great way. And to add to that, Academia also borrows from the Twitter sphere. Toxic masculinity did not originate with us necessarily. Yeah. Really originated with some young thinking people on Twitter. So respectability politics is a term that comes from Evelyn Higginbotham. Evelyn Higginbotham is a historian at Harvard, and she talks about black women's activism, particularly in the early 20th century around these church movements, these religious movements that remember, black people are in a situation in reconstruction and post reconstruction, which we are denied citizenship. I mean, we are, there is no qualms about that. We are second and third class citizens. Part of the stakes of that were this idea that it came from within the race that if we just performed sexual morality enough, if we just performed gender normativity enough, if we just assimilated well enough to white standards of gender, family, manhood, womanhood. Remember, this is like the Victorian era and this idea of true manhood and true womanhood is really, really pronounced in the culture. If we just behaved well enough, we would achieve our citizenship by proving that we too were humans. Respectability politics is usually understood in terms of how it's inscribed onto individuals, right? Like, you know, when Bill Cosby is telling people to pull their pants up, that's an individualized prescription of respectability politics that somehow this entire system of police brutality will come down to your ability to just pull your pants up, right? Now we understand why Bill Cosby is not only wrong, but also the most prolific rapist of the 20th century. And that this dangerous language that he was talking to black people about it's basically we have responsibility for racism because the names we give our children right this is very anti-du boisian way of thinking by the way but respectability politics is basically the study of how marginalized groups pretty much police each other around behavior i have tried to adapt that to a scale of respectability politics that i would call reactive respectability meaning this is when you see respectability politics get deployed through social campaigns and through institutions. So coming out of Reconstruction, there's historian Michelle Mitchell, who studies all the sexual morality propaganda out of Reconstruction. Now, this is like a history that I think a lot of people don't know. All those abolitionists who were very, very religiously fervent, right? 
Post-emancipation, those abolitionists didn't just say, oh, job well done, let's go home. They continue to have this very paternalistic idea of recently freed African-Americans. And part of what they were doing is saying, okay, well, now that you're free, now you need to act a certain way. Now you need to taper your sexuality. And they had these very racist ideas of black sexuality. And their idea was if you just change people's sexual virtues, if you just assimilate them to this false idea of sexual propriety, and they really meant white sexual propriety, that that will prove that they're worthy of their citizenship. So one of the big campaigns in that day was funny enough, we talk about you know teen pregnancy now. They were talking about teen marriage then. They thought teen marriage was very unsavory and uncouth, and teen marriage was like the big problem of like, you know, these kids are getting married at 14 and that's, you know, that's the ruin of the race. But for me, those projects of reactive respectability don't just happen in Reconstruction. They actually happen whenever there's a perceived crisis within black communities. So we can look at it around the early 20th century, early iterations of civil rights movement. We're talking about the 30s, 40s, and particularly really the 20s as well, when lynching is the issue. White racial terrorism is the most immediate issue. White racial terrorism is devastating black economic progress. And and so there's a reactive respectability response to that, which is these I am a man movements, which are these, you know, uh, these ideas that black manhood should assert itself, right? Um, Garveyism, which is a huge, massive movement. I think it's a shame that our students mostly don't understand who Marcus Garvey was. Marcus Garvey was as big as it can get in terms of black movements. He was probably the most successful organizer of black liberation that we've seen besides maybe Toussaint Louverture, who overthrows the French crown, right? Marcus Harvey is so effective that there's a wonderful quote when this parade of Garveyites of the UNIAA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, and by improvement, that was like a eugenicist term. The UNIA has these parades through the streets of Harlem, and there's an Irish woman watching, and she says, it seems the Negro will get his freedom before the Irishman, right? That the idea that black liberation was so within reach during Garveyism. Well, these are all reactive respectability. The crisis was this black devastation due to lynching and this new thing called Jim Crow. And remember, this is the height of Woodrow Wilson is like, you know, this is this is that era. This is the Harding Woodrow Wilson era. This is the height of the neo-Confederacy. Woodrow Wilson and D.W. Griffin and uh, what's Thomas, what's his name? Um, Dixon, who's the, the author of The Klansman. The Klansman goes on to be Birth of a Nation, the film. Thomas Dixon is Woodrow Wilson's college classmate. That's the reason that Woodrow Wilson is pulled into the marketing of Birth of a Nation. And Woodrow Wilson is as many of us know, probably the most white supremacist president we've ever had. And that is high competition. We're talking about competing with Andrew Jackson for that title. In terms of modern presidency, he is it. Trump wishes he was Woodrow Wilson. And so we're talking about that era in which black people are organizing through institutions and through social campaigns to say basically the response to exploitation, racial class exploitation, the response to systemic racism, the response to Jim Crow will be how we behave well. 
And so when it comes to our modern era in Morehouse, we're talking about the response to mass incarceration, the response to the war on drugs, is that black men would just put on suits and pull their pants up and go to college and get education. And that was really how what we call black male crises, this idea that black men were being devastated by unemployment, uh, particularly we're talking about the deindustrialization age post 1970s. Black men were being devastated by this new rise in crack. And to be particular here, it wasn't just black men. One of the things I argue in the book is that deindustrialization equally affected black men and women, particularly low income black men and women, particularly in cities. Deindustrialization, remember, devastates women's employment more so than men's. All these jobs that women were doing were replaced by automation or they were replaced by cheapened globalized labor. So this issue that was really affecting poor black people within the race gets reframed by black male elites as something that's affecting black men and then they reframe it as something that's affecting black men's class mobility instead of saying we should actually be focusing our racial agenda on pulling the poorest black people up from the margins. It becomes, no, the race is best benefited when black men go to college and become corporate executives. That's how the veil can be used to distort an issue within the race. Black male elites basically took this issue of crisis, they gendered it by making it about men, and they classed it by saying the solution was just to upwardly mobilize black people through through elitism, basically, through college, through uh, corporate attainment, through uh, white collar jobs. That's why I think the veil is so important as a it's almost inescapable if you're going to talk about any sort of issues about the interior of black life. So it seems like your project, I'm just, I'm always interested in what we actually do when we engage with work of foundational mm -hmm. figures. And it seems like your project is really drawing on Du Bois, not only in taking this concept, which allows you to understand this process, but you're building and, and improving some aspects of the concept right. that weren't explored. And then you're also taking methodological inspiration of how to study something yes. like this. So it's really, it's like Du Boisian through and through. Yes, I talk about this. So one of my chapters and then also uh, a, a recent article manuscript was about racializing rape culture, right? So racialized rape culture, meaning that uh, to give you the big picture, campus sexual assault has not declined in terms of its rates when the nation's rates of sexual assault have declined. And so most of us who are in that field are trying to understand, like, what is so different about, you know, college campuses that's resulting in their numbers staying stagnate over the past 50 years when the national rates have declined. So one of the approaches in the literature has been to study rape culture. Now, rape culture doesn't just belong to college campuses, but campus rape cultures are very, very particular because students have interactions with each other that are organized by the space and by the structure of their institutions in ways that they wouldn't have if they weren't in college, right? And rape culture is the idea that there are environments in which rape is more likely to be trivialized, more likely that perpetrators of rape are less likely to be held accountable, and where rape is more likely to occur. That's what sort of defines a rape culture, right? So we see this across, you know, the military, 
We see this in boarding schools. We see this in colleges. Racialized rape culture is the idea that race is the modality through which all of those things happen. So, you know, I I like borrowing from the work of Cedric Robinson because he talks about racialized capitalism. He says racialized capitalism is not a type of capitalism because there are no forms of capitalism that aren't racialized. Racialized rape culture is not a type of rape culture. There are no forms of rape culture that are not racialized because if you're talking about who is held accountable, well, that's always going to be a racial question about which men are criminalized, which men are held accountable. If you're talking about how gender and masculinity are perceived, there's no way of divorcing our perceptions of gender and masculinity, particularly how college men perceive them, from how they have racial expectations and ideals of masculinity. Race sets the tone for what they do and do not take seriously in their gendered interactions, right? Like black men tend to take their interactions with white women quite seriously because there's an entire history of them getting really violently preyed upon because of their consensual interactions with white women. It certainly takes into account how men construct, perceive, and make meanings of their interactions with each other and their interactions with women and women and women aren't the only victims of campus sexual assault. Men also victimize other men. But 99% of campus sexual assaults are done by men. And in fact, we know that about 10.8% of men will commit an act of sexual assault while they're in college. So in approaching that masculinity piece, I have always approached it methodologically as though Racialized rape culture requires that Du Boisian lens once again about understanding how men think about themselves being seen racially, right? So part of how black men do their racialized rape culture is that the meanings they make about sex, the meanings they make about women, the meanings they make about being criminalized are racialized contexts. White men aren't actually thinking about the stereotypes of white male criminality when they are committing campus crimes. And we know that white men in college commit more crimes than even white men their age outside of college. There's something intrinsically about college that lets white men get away with it, right? Uh, We know this because they go on to be Supreme Court justices. So my idea about racialized rape culture was that Race is the modality through which men are making their meanings and through which they're interacting with their institutions. So these rape cultures are inextricably linked to racialized contexts. And then methodologically, you know, my take on it was that, you know, Du Boisian sociology isn't just a way of seeing these cultures of rape. It's also a way of talking. So in our literature, we have known, oh, for the last 30 years, this goes back to the work in the 1980s of Mary Koss. Mary Koss was a really big sexual assault scholar, and she argued that you can't actually just ask participants about sexual assault because if they don't actually have an appropriate definition in terms of people will describe all sorts of non-consensual sexual acts and not call it rape, right? They'll be like, oh yeah, you know, well, we didn't allow her to leave the car, but you know, I don't know if that was rape, right? So 
when you talk to people, it's useless to ask them, you know, describe an incident of sexual assault to me because they'll never actually yield their own understandings of non-consensual sex are so not accurate that they'll never actually yield useful data. So Mary Costa's idea was that you had to talk to them in neutral ways. That was her take on it. And in neutral ways, it would sort of yield these narratives about non-consensual sexual acts, otherwise known as assault. My idea in that was that race was a way of talking in the Du Boisian sense that because, uh, you know, again, I study black men, but because black men were so conditioned in this country to rightfully understand themselves as racially subjugated and racially hyper surveilled, that you could get them to talk about race. And with that would come the accompanying narratives about sex, women, dating, other men, masculinity, masculine ideals. And that's exactly what happened when I went into my work and getting them to talk about race. They would then talk about, oh, well, it's so important for, you know, for, for black men to respect, you know, black women and to be seen as respecting black women. Cause you know, you can't have black men be associated with disrespecting black women. Cause you know, we have a history of, you know, people thinking that we're sexual predators. All that was coming without me asking them, Hey, can you explain uh, the relationship between black men and rape? Or can you explain an account in which you felt like you witnessed a sexual assault? I didn't ask any of that. You asked them about race. And that is a way of talking because that's the way they constructed gender and sexuality was through that racial lens. I'd love to talk about this for another hour, <laughs> but I promised, actually, it's kind of fitting. There's a book release in 10 minutes oh, for great. the sociology of W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes. And I promised that I would not keep you past that time. So I want to ask you one final question. Sure. <laughs> the project's amazing and it fits so perfectly with understanding what we can do with a theorist that isn't just engaging on a superficial level. Right. But I'm wondering, and you've done this a ton already, but if you had to imagine you're standing up in front of a giant room filled with undergraduates, grad students, other sociologists, and some of the general public who had not taken the time to engage or read the work of right. W.E.B. Du Bois yet, what would you tell them is the reason? And it's just like a mm -hmm. short selling point. Here's why you really need to pick up this stuff and engage with it. Here's why it's worth taking the time to do so. I would say that if you do not understand the color line, then you do not understand America. Mark Twain said this as well, by the way. Mark Twain was such a progressive thinking white guy. He said there is no divorcing America from race. And that's why his novels, you know, so took on race head on. Du Bois is our social science proof of that. That if you think that there is an American question that you can get to and, and circumvent the color line, then you are not doing social science, period. The race is not a variable, you know, and not an optional variable in our sociological questions. It is the driving hierarchy of this country. I mean, I think that most of our civilizations have a gender hierarchy, particularly if they were colonized by Europe, right? But this American racial question, you know, this is a slaveocracy. You know, we had a slaveocracy for three quarters of our history and we're just recently, we know without a slave-based economy, and some would argue that, you know, the legacy of our economy now is still a slave-based economy. If you 
you think that you can do something that is about an American problem that does not deal with the color line, then you are quite mistaken. And I think that is why Du Bois is so important, that he's proof that race is not an optional idea of inquiry. It is the driver of our social problems in this country. I mean, you know, you look at the 1619 Project in the New York Times, that's a project that really masterfully says, look, all of these contemporary issues can be traced a direct line back to slavery, right? Um, that there's basically no getting around contemporary health care. There's no getting around contemporary city planning. There's no getting around contemporary popular culture without going back to slavery. Well, Du Bois really does the same thing. And in fact, I would call that 1619 Project a Du Boisian way of seeing that's why, you know, what I would tell an audience is that Du Bois forces us to deal with that in a way that makes our understandings and our solutions that much better. Because by avoiding Du Bois, where have we gotten? Avoiding Du Bois has not gotten us very far. Dealing with that color line is really, I mean, how can you address a problem without naming it? That's a perfect way to end. So thank you again for taking the time to talk. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.